0: Welcome to The Well, I am Brandon Edgens And I am Anson Mount Brandon, how you doing? How you doing? I'm good oh, I'm sorry, you, well, you wanted to say something?
1: <laughs> huh? What? <laughs> I cut you off Oh, uh, no, you cut me off. No, I cut you off. I can't tell. This connection is... Uh, let's just
0: end this episode now. Let's not even try. <laughs> that was
1: the well, everyone. Thank you for joining. We can not get past the lag time. Uh, you, know, you know what? I should start off with something um, uh, that won't be a shock to you, but uh, I'm in your house, man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you sent me that clip from uh, David Lynch's... Uh, was it The Lost Highway? Yeah. Lost Highway. <laughs> that amazing scene with, uh, who's that actor?
1: Uh, Robert.
0: The guy Robert who was Philip. on trial for, for he yeah. was accused of killing his wife and got off. Um, uh, yeah, oh, anyways. What's his name? Robert, Blake. Robert, Blake. Robert Blake. Robert Blake. Robert oh, Blake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. he's, the, the lead, the, the, the protagonist is at a party, and Robert Blake, is this vampire-looking guy who comes up to him and he, he says, what does he say? He says,
1: The weird little guy walks up to Bill Pullman and says, uh, We've We've met met before, before. haven't we? Bill Pullman says,
2: I don't think so. Where was it you think we met?
3: At your house, don't you remember? Are you sure? Of course.
1: As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. (laughs) (laughs) And Bill Pullman says, what? The creepy little guy says, don't believe me? Call me call me and hands up this weird-looking cell phone. So Bill Pullman calls his own home number and then hears the guy standing in front of him answer the phone at his house. I told you I was here. Turns to the guy in front of him. How did you do that?
4: How'd you get inside my house?
1: Ask me. So then he asked the guy on the phone.
5: (laughs) How did you get get into my my house?
1: You invited me.
5: Why are
6: you? <laughs> <laughs> Give me back
0: my phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we basically had the text version of that conversation. Yeah, and I sent a Jeff <laughs> and everything. And I'm like, so I'm in, so I'm in Toronto, still, still shooting Star Trek, and uh, Brandon and his wife Sharon are doing us the. The favor of house sitting for us for a while and how are the chickens
1: they're great uh they're doing really well uh of course you know we're always worried about charlotte but uh so far so good this night doesn't seem to be getting worse she's the uh the low hen in the pecking order so you always have to keep an ex- a special eye out for them
0: yeah so um we we decided it was time to check in with you guys um not with a regular episode not with an episode of the drop but uh I don't know. In keeping with the idea, we are a podcast about creativity and it occurs to me that part of creative thinking is learning to think and see the world from different points of view. You know, when I am building a character, it's not just about adopting another accent or putting on a silly hat. Sometimes I do that. But it's about learning to to see the world through that character's that person's eyes and that's um that's something that my parents instilled in me uh it's part of the reason I think I am able to act is because from a very early age they encouraged me to do that and um we felt it was time to do a little bit of that ourselves um and that's the reason for this episode right Brandon?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm mm-hmm uh Right. And as to, and we had this discussion where, you know, as to, you know, white men hosting a podcast on the subject, um, you know, we can't speak with any authority about this. So we're kind of turning this episode over to the voices of friends and family who we surveyed, you know, Asian friends and family that we surveyed uh, to get their stories. Because if you're Asian in this country, you have one of these stories um and we made it an intentionally small sample size because you know if we put it out on most social media then you could say oh well you put out the call to a thousand people of course you got you know a couple of dozen stories um but you don't have to look far if you know a couple of dozen asian americans then you're going to have a couple of dozen of these stories uh they all have them uh most of them are probably too uh tired or traumatized to recount them they're tired of it really tired of it so you don't always hear it from them. So, And, and it's important to remember that, you know, of the, of the recordings and stories that you're about to hear, there were just as many people who got back to me and said, I appreciate what you're doing, but I'm really, this, yes, I have my stories, but I'm kind of tired of talking about it, um, which is understandable. Uh, we ask that you listen to these stories, and that's all you have to do. Listen. But that's
7: a lot.
6: There's a kind of an immediate exhaustion that hits whenever somebody says, you know, talk about your experience about being Asian. And it comes from I think the body recognizing that if you, if we're going to talk about this, then we have to enter into, you know, an element of being triggered and reliving certain traumas, however big or small they may be, you know? So I'm just feeling exhausted. Um, but I will say that, uh, I'm grateful that people want to hear my perspective, and and maybe I bring a particular one because I'm I'm sort of third culture. Um, you know, meaning I'm 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 mixed, half New Zealand and half Malaysian, and I will say that the thing that I really loved about coming to New York was that, you know, some odd 20 years ago, was that I was such an an anomaly in both either Malaysia or New Zealand um, that I really did feel isolated in that. People always recognized the other in me. And when I got to New York, there was such anonymity because it's such a melting pot. So it saddens me. It really saddens me to experience the reverberation yet again in the the one place that gave me such initial solace to begin with. It's kind of heartbreaking.
2: In my sophomore year of high school, I was in the same class with one of my friends from middle school. But we didn't talk as much when we got to high school. We would say hi to each other here and there, but we weren't really the best of friends anymore. And as I'm walking to our class, she says to me, I'm not going to give you a hug because you have COVID. And this was when COVID was just starting and becoming a thing. At first, when I heard her say it, I didn't want to believe it because why would she say something like that? And it was weird because we both knew each other. So when she said that, I was confused and I didn't know how to approach her about it. I looked around to see if anybody else heard her, but there wasn't. It was just me walking to the class by myself and it was very directed towards me. I didn't want to say anything because I chose to ignore it and not let it affect me. I told my friends and they said to me, why didn't you tell her that you were offended by this comment? And at the time, I was confused and I was shocked and I didn't know how to address it. I wish I would have said something instead of for myself, but I didn't.
3: In the beginning of October 2020, I had a friend that asked me, what's your opinion on Black Lives Matter? At first, when she asked me, I didn't really know what to say at that moment because I didn't really want to talk about it because i wasn't as educated on black lives matter i said i think black lives matter should still be known to everybody and everybody should just treat everyone equally my response was something unexpected she said not everybody should be treated equally because you're an asian and you wouldn't understand it you change our virus at first i didn't really want to waste my energy on something like this so later on we drifted apart then a couple of months later, in December, she talked to me and told me that she was into K-pop and J-pop. The fact that she said ching-chong to me made me really frustrated and I said, well, you know they're ching-chongs too. She said, no they're not, they're Korean and Japanese. That's when she bursted my bubble and so I said, I'm not Chinese, I'm monk. And not every Asian is Chinese and now it's March and we haven't talked since.
8: So I was on the phone with my mom the other day and I should side note here that my mom is extremely obsessed with the news. She often calls me to remind me to be careful and to watch out for this and that. And so the topic of this said conversation was all the Asian hate that's going on right now in the world and she proceeded to tell me that when I leave my house that I should cover my face entirely even my eyes and my first reaction was with laughter I said to her mom I I can't cover everything on my face uh, I need to see and she said no please can you can you wear sunglasses with your mask she's just so worried about her daughters and my next feeling was you know this is actually quite sad here's a mom seeing all this scary stuff going on right now in the news and she needs to call me and tell me to hide my face.
9: Last week, I was running in the morning and this random guy approached me and yelled at me. Fuck you, Asian. My first thought was, (laughs) of course this would happen. Let's just be patient. But the more I think about it, the more I feel, why do I have to be patient? I didn't do anything to this guy and we Asian didn't do anything to harm anybody. Whether it is an Asian hate crime or not, it's actually nothing new to me. Three or four years ago, when I lived in New York, I was punched by a random guy in the middle of the street. I don't know if it was because I was Asian, or I was female, or I looked weaker. I did nothing. And he decided to come up to me and punch me in the face. And uh, he just left. When it happened, I, I was just so scared. Only thing I could do was to leave and go back to my house, the place I know I would be safe. Once I got home, I called the police and their response was, you should have stayed at the crime scene so we could investigate and you don't have any scars, so we can't do anything really. They marked my case as harassment and that was it. The media says Asian hate crimes have increased by 150% in 2020. But I wonder how many uncounted hate crimes like mine happened even before 2020. I wonder how many of us couldn't find the support, have been forced to give up and be just patient. I think we can't be patient anymore we have to speak up and let the world know what
7: what really is going on. A lot of my encounters had always felt insignificant, as if I'm making it more than what it is. So I just end up disregarding the experience and write it off as rudeness and ignorance. A while back, I ended my relationship with this non-Asian guy I was seeing, and he made a comment about getting his eyes surgically smaller, so I'll stay with him.
10: I am the product of a child kidnapped bride. My mother was kidnapped at a very young age and was forced into marriage. The reason why I'm telling this story is because I've had my fair share or even my share of racist, anti-Asian slurs, comments, jokes, everything from go back to your country to ching chong chong, and even the Asian woman have slanted pussies. These comments, slurs, and jokes don't mean as much to me as the story I wanted to share with you all today. With my mother being a child, and being kidnapped into marriage at a young age, I didn't realize the impact it truly had on her until last year. I took her shopping for her, what we like to call in our culture, funeral clothes. I noticed that she didn't look for or want to buy any feminine clothes. And by feminine clothes, I mean dresses, blouses, skirts. And I asked her, why are you looking for suits? She said, it's none of your business. Don't worry about it. I kept asking until she told me. And she said, I don't want to die in a dress because I believe that if I die in a suit, I will have more of a chance to be reincarnated as a man. And ideally, I'd like to be reincarnated as a white man. This was extremely hard to swallow. The fact that my mother My mother knew that being a white man was better in the afterlife as a reincarnated option really hit home for me. I mean, it it hit my heart and my soul to know that she didn't have to tell me all of her racist, anti-Asian, misogynist, sexist stories. For me to understand why she wanted to be in a suit on her dying day in a casket as her last outfit before she departed in order for her to be reincarnated as a white man.
5: Whenever I step outside, immediately my spider senses are up. My guard is up. I'm looking around every corner. I am anticipating um, to be verbally assaulted. And I live in a fairly great neighborhood where I know my neighbors, um, but I have my guard up. And I always have had because, due to my Krav Maga training and some other martial arts that I've done, um, I'm really aware of my surroundings. And Not only it's because of the martial arts, but I think it's because of the numerous times throughout my life where I have been victim of assault, um, verbal assault. Luckily, nothing uh, physical. It's come close, but, uh, you know, it's never gotten to, to that point. And those experiences have actually all risen up to the surface and what's funny is you think these old wounds have healed themselves because they were years ago. But they still are raw. And it's been interesting to have to deal with that. Um, and what's been helpful is, is reaching out to my Asian friends to check in on them to see how they are feeling. And across the board, we're all feeling the same. Uh, paralyzed. Uh, vulnerable, um, feeling a level of responsibility to act, to protest, to speak out. But at the same time, life gets in the way and we still have all of our regular responsibilities that we have to deal with, taking care of our families, going to work, and juggling our goals, etc.
11: When I was growing up in Clinton, Iowa, a neighbor scratched a swastika on our station wagon glass window. Like, they really etched it in a few times. It was uh, in the glass. And I just remember not knowing what it was, but just feeling like it was really hateful. And my dad covered it up with cardboard until it was fixed. But it just had the sense that we were unwelcomed. And this was a tiny town of maybe about 30,000 at the time. And you knew all the neighbors, and they seemed to, you know, be friendly. And then you realize one of them, you know, feels this way. It was very hurtful. Um, and then growing up, I just always felt like in Minnesota, um, just not that I belonged there, even though I guess Hmong people have been in Minnesota for quite a while. We have a pretty significant population in the Twin Cities. So, Whenever people say they don't know who Hmong people are and they're from the Twin Cities, I feel like they really went out of their way to not encounter or ask about or look at or see any person of color in their neighborhood. I mean, there's so many of us in the Twin Cities that there's Hmong stores. We're in the news. We're in, in the legislature. And if people don't know who Hmong people are, I really think they are... Intentionally trying not to know anything about people outside of their own circle. Um, so, yeah, I feel like Minnesota really frustrated me growing up because it felt like they want to be, you know, progressive. You know, we're this uh, blue state in the middle of the Midwest. and But there's this deep-seated fear of the other that it never really kind of like goes away. I remember working in nonprofits and in social justice programs in Minnesota. And, you know, when I'd go to a white event, they would still look at me like this exotic, strange being. Even my white coworkers never invited me to their house. You know, they would invite all their friends, all their white coworkers to their house, but they would never invite me. And I would invite them to my house, but they wouldn't accept. This concept of being neighborly, it only extends on, In words on face value it does not extend in terms of like caring or belief or understanding so I've always felt that in Minnesota I come back I have to play this game of racist or bad at your job because I'll go to a restaurant and it's like everything is like mostly white I watch servers interact with my group differently when I'm with my home friends than they do when I'm with my white friends and It just feels like this Minnesota nice, this friendliness veneer, only extends to other white people. And it just reminds me that, you know, this is kind of um, a subsection of America. Even at their best, they're fearful of people who don't look like them. And Asians, unfortunately, we are very uh, accommodating. And we are, you know, we try to change, we try to adapt we're still being treated like we're radioactive. And it's hurtful. And it's frustrating. And I think we can all do better. And to anybody who's white growing up in Minnesota or live in Minnesota, you can do better. (laughs) Just, you know, think a little bit more about the people around you. I mean, xenophobia is a thing among all of us. But, man, Asians have to deal with it on such a completely different level. And Hmong people in Minnesota have had to deal with it in such a graceful and accommodating way. I feel like we're just tired of having to do this over and over again and just constantly apologizing and constantly trying to ignore and cover things up with cardboard, knowing that the hate is there and that it's right next door. It's very painful. Let's do better.
12: I grew up in the Midwest uh, and also grew up in the project. So I experienced, you know, the outcome of the anti-Asian hate crime um, from both the black and from the white uh, community. Not so much of the lab community, surprisingly. But after growing up in the Midwest, I went to New York City for school and... And I ended up in Harlem where it's mostly populated by the black community and with the Hispanic community. And again, going to my favorite Chinese spot, you know, because in New York City there's always that corner Chinese spot. And, and basically going there for dinner, lunch, you know, and you would see so much hate from the black community you know, and seeing how they throw throw racism towards the the, the shop owners or or you for being different and being this color skin of you because again, Harlem was cheap to live in, so you're, you're invading in a sense invading in their 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 domain or, or where they live, so you're, you're taking over slowly kind of taking over. You know the, their hood or the, their 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 property in a sense, um, but yeah, I mean, for me, it, it, it's it's uh, that and it's just kind of how our society kind of kind of pitted the Asian and the Black community together, and you know, and it, after George Floyd situation and having the fact of having an Asian. American police officer uh, being part of, you know, the situation, how the media kind of focused pretty much on uh, the police officer uh, that kneeled on top of George Floyd and only the Asian police officer. Again, media is pitting Asian and Black against each other. Yes, and also the white police officer, but there was also two other police officers. One was, I believe, Hispanic or Dominican or, or half black, and the other one was white. But the most focus was the Asian community and the, the police officer, the Asian police officer, and the white police officer. And after that, there was so much hate crime towards the, the Hmong community in the Midwest that no, everyone was afraid to talk about. And, the, and anybody who talked about it was considered anti-black or uh, against black life matter. Like for example, I was in New York City. It was a dark night. Uh, I was out and about drinking with a friend who it was with a group of friends actually. Uh, and basically I you know got to, my friend got to a point where she drunk too, too one too many. And she was white, you know, comes from a higher upper class fa- white family, lives in upper west side. So I took her home and literally when I got out of the taxi, the, pol- the police officer basically swooped around and thought me, little old me who likes to smile and laugh and, you know, just crack a joke all the time gets pulled over uh, with my friend who is half knocked out so i could take her home was accused as about to rape her and the person that did this was a black cop who was who strangled me you know against the wall and choking me you know and later on i went to jail and they took my friend to the hospital just because they thought I was going to rape, you know, this, my white female friend. And besides asking me if I was going to take her home to her house, you know, so she could sleep it off, you know, after I plead that that was the case. Um, but yeah, that was, that was my experience and this is literally the first time I'm talking about this and allowing somebody to publish it. Um, because going through what I went through during the rally of Black Lives Matter and almost random people try to, you know, cancel me and my, my career was, was scary because I worked so hard for it. So thank you. Bye.
13: I definitely experienced racism being in a biracial relationship, most of it being directed online People who, I believe, wouldn't have the audacity to voice their opinions right to my face. I am part Chinese, part Vietnamese, and with my husband being white, people at times will question the authenticity of our love. Things like, he's only with you because you're Asian, or he's got an Asian fetish. Reading comments like this were definitely hard at the beginning, and there was only a brief moment where I would question us then I'd quickly realize how dumb that was to allow an internet troll to take up any space or energy. I want to be clear. I'm not only confident in who I am, my ethnicity, but I'm also confident in who I married. I shouldn't have to justify that for anyone. Comments like this are not only inherently racist, but it dehumanizes and hypersexualizes Asian women. The shooting in Atlanta being a prime example. Unfortunately, this is something us Asian women are often used to dealing with, that we almost become numb to the fact that it's happening. I've dealt with it in different forms, in past relationships, with strangers on the street, and even with my extended family. The trend here is that all the culprits have been male, which branches into a larger conversation about prejudice on the basis of sex. But the issue at hand here is that the perception that Asian women are submissive and fetishized are ingrained in our everyday culture. We're often not allowed to be outspoken or put our needs ahead of anyone else's, let alone a man's. We see it in our history, we see it in our workplaces, we see it depicted on film. If we expect things to change, we need to start acknowledging this, challenging what's been normalized,
14: and see better representation. So... I'm fortunate enough not to have encountered any explicitly aggressive form of racism, but once a person at Times Square handing out a flyer looked at me and uh, took away their hand and said, no, you don't get one, you Asians are rat eaters. And I was just so taken aback. All I could say was F you, and I kind of regret it. I wish I had said something else than that or something more. But anyway, they would just keep saying that um, until they couldn't see me. And they were a person of color too, FYI. Um, but anyway, that was the most aggressive interaction out of the ones I've experienced so far. Others were just a few occasions where people would say a sexy Asian girl or ask me where I'm really from. Oh, and this guy with what I think is an European accent at the park said konnichiwa to every Asian passing by. And when I told him that that's racist, he said, no, no, I love Asians.
7: I remember being in an argument with one of my ex-friends now. Um, And this was during the time when uh, Asian crimes were rising and Black Lives Matter protests were still in place. And we both had two different political and human rights ideals. I remember texting her and arguing with her that she did not understand the importance of Asian American hate crimes and Black Lives Matter. When I told her that me as an Asian American, I have dealt with Racism, And not only me, but my grandparents and my siblings and my friends, they have all dealt with some sort of racism throughout this COVID-19 pandemic. And she asked me for evidence and I gave her it and I told her our stories. And I remember she texted me and she told me that that was not evidence that my stories were not believable and they were invalid in terms of evidence. And at that point, I was completely enraged because it made it seem like she was basically saying, you are not dead. You are not hurt physically. You're still here. So, therefore, it didn't happen. And that completely enraged me. It's like, people don't believe me. And I think now, at this point, it doesn't matter if you got slashed in the face or if you were called uh, an Asian slur. Racism is still racism. And I don't think that she understood that. Asian experiences need to stop being invalidated.
11: One last note. I just wanted to mention that people of color have always felt outside of the community in America. And we go out of our way to try to accommodate and be better, make white people feel safe. And I just feel like this is the time that White people make an effort to make us feel safe. I mean, you do feel like you own this country, but really you share it with us. And we've been here the whole time, but you treat us like we don't belong here. And we are building this country with you. So just try to be nice to us. (laughs) Try to, you know, treat us like a friend and as a welcome neighbor, not as a nuisance and not as something to be afraid of, because, you know, we have more to be afraid of, being a minority here. So that's all I'll say. Just try to be more for the people around
4: you. I'll precursor by sharing that my experience with racism has been minimal, and in the past, I've considered myself to be fortunate for this reason. But upon really thinking about this, I came to realize the magnitude of the problem that exists, not only because of the rise in racist hate crimes in the Asian community, among all the other ethno and racial cultural communities, but also because in a way I had devalued my own experiences because in comparison to others, it wasn't quote unquote as bad. And I am someone of Vietnamese and Chinese descent who is also a first generation Canadian This kind of thinking is really common, unfortunately. And that said, independent of my initial thoughts of thinking it wasn't so bad, I understand that there are layers to the problems at hand. But devaluing my own experiences doesn't serve the goal. All of it has so many layers. It's a systemic problem. It's a problem that exists in our local and global communities. And it's a problem that needs work on an individual level as well. And we need more than one approach. So it needs to be the raising of awareness, it needs to be speaking to government agencies and organizations, it's supporting those who have experienced the trauma, but it's also about asking ourselves the question that I ask myself all the time, what can I do? How can we collectively create change? For me as a black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu who chooses self-defense as my job, it is so much about equipping people with skills, that can help them to defend themselves against the people who are committing these awful, heinous acts. And in doing so, I believe it really helps to write a different narrative using an approach that changes our experience, my experience from victim to victor. So teaching people how to defend themselves while we continue to work on those layers upon layers of problems that exist. It's one solution that we can do right now Online, if we have to. In Canada, actually, there's a higher number of anti Asian racism per Asian capita than the United States. So it exists everywhere and more than we think. Offensive, derogatory language, hypersexualization, perpetuations of cultural demeanor, ways of being, or actual physical violence, these are all different things, but it still creates the same feelings of hurt, of sadness, frustration, anger, sometimes feelings of worthlessness and trauma that can have such long lasting impacts. And to be on the receiving end of discrimination or violence just because of the color of your skin or where you or your family were geographically born is awful. So my experiences, while few, have still impacted me. Certain words do still trigger me, but it's that I choose a different response, that I'm a victor, not a victim, and it's not just that I know how to physically defend myself, but that I do not accept it mentally as well. And I encourage others to do the same.
5: So the main thing for me is I'm really thankful for all the allies out there who have been spreading the word, who have been creating awareness um, on their social media platforms, but I thought to myself, what, what more can we do? Um, what more can we do than just volunteer our time to these organizations or donating money? It just feels as though we need to do more. And um, I'm trying to put out content out there, uh, resources that people could use. And one that I found that is um, really important to me is bystander intervention training. You know, it's five different methods you can do to support someone when they're being harassed, Um, to stop it, uh, to try to prevent it, or just to take care of the person after they've been um, verbally assaulted. And it's because I think these cases are still going to continue, and it's just because ignorance, hate, racism are often so deeply cemented in people's minds that it's going to take a long, long time for it all to change. So we need to be ready. We need to be equipped with the tools necessary to confront it when it's happening in front of us. So I've reached out to a friend of mine named uh, Matthew Bennett. He's an actor here in Toronto, great photographer, uh, was on Battlestar Galactica back in its heyday. Uh, as one of the Cylons. That's a side note. Anyways, uh, he also trained at the Krav Maga school that uh, we both received our black belts in. Great guy, uh, such a strong fighter, and such a great teacher. So I want to provide a free self-defense seminar to anyone who's interested. And I've decided to start small because it'll be the first one that I'm ever holding. I've taught some classes before, but never over Zoom. So I reached out to a group that I know here in Toronto called Asian in the Six on Facebook. And there are a bunch of um, Asian uh, creatives, uh, actors, screenwriters, filmmakers, um, etc. They're excited, totally on board. And it's just a matter of finding the right time to do it. when I have some free time in April. So that should be exciting. And hopefully it could expand into bigger things. Uh, it'll probably be a free event or maybe we'll charge and then we could donate it to some um, Asian Canadian organization who is combating Asian hate here in Canada. Other than that, the last thing I think I want to leave you with is maybe some helpful advice for people who are feeling vulnerable leaving their houses in, uh, during these trying times. What I tell a lot of my friends and family is to constantly be aware of your surroundings. Don't bury your head in your technological devices, your iPhones, your earbuds, blocking out the world and, you know, being completely oblivious. That is not going to help you. So occasionally, just check who's around you when you're walking down the street, who's behind you. I I, often, when I'm walking my dog, I'll just throw my head over my shoulder just to make sure I'm not being followed, that nobody sketchier is around me, um... If I see somebody in the distance who, I don't know, I get this gut feeling that they're menacing or they could be up to no good, I'll cross the street. Just because I know how to defend myself and I feel fairly confident walking out on the street doesn't mean that I'm, I'm, um, I'm trying to pick a fight. Um, it doesn't matter how good you are, how skilled a fighter you are. If that person has a knife or a gun, there's a high likelihood that you will be injured or worse. So avoid confrontation at all costs. It's not worth it. It's not worth your life. Also, predators out there are usually looking for easy targets. For the most part, they're looking for somebody weaker, smaller than they are. And they want to attack someone or take advantage of someone who is going to put up the least amount of fight as possible. So what I tell people is to stand tall, stand proud, keep your head up. Uh, look like you won't take shit, look like that you will fight back if necessary. Um, And I think those are helpful tips for anyone who is feeling a little uh, uneasy about stepping outside these days.
1: I want to start by first saying thank you so much to everyone who sent us a story and for entrusting to white guys with those stories. It took a leap of faith on some of their parts. I understand that, and uh, I really, really appreciate it. And now, I'd like to piggyback off of something I said in the drop part six, the George Floyd episode we called we can do better if you don't remember what i said or didn't hear the episode i'll recap it it went something like this if slavery was america's birth defect then racism is at the very least america's greatest handicap i don't believe you can grow up in this country breathe the air sing the songs Inherit the history that we all inherited and pretend that its roots in racism have never ever spread its tendrils into your pristine subconscious. This is why we went on to discuss unconscious bias in that episode. And this sort of self-examining can be unnerving But I don't think it should be because these unconscious biases, these deeply held, unexamined racist thoughts are not, in my opinion, not something necessarily to feel guilty about. Because they were put there before you knew what they were back when you were a child, not not before you were born, but late childhood. It's nothing to feel guilty about any more than anyone with a physical handicap should feel guilty about their handicap. The only thing you should feel guilty about is if you refuse to honestly examine yourself and having found something unpleasant, refuse to learn and change and remain a child. As Maya Angelou said, do the best you can until you know better. Then, when you know better, do better. But what I continue to see in the on and offline discussions after that episode, not to mention the broader cultural discussions around the George Floyd case or any other issue where race is an issue, is I I still continue to see mostly white people, bend over backwards to not call racism for what it is. So many white people will say racism exists, sure, but deny it's part of them and deny it happens even adjacent to them. I, su- I suppose it's the fear that they'll be blamed or made to feel guilty. White people are so terrified of being branded with the scarlet R. They never do the work to examine themselves out of fear for what they might find. And I have a story. I had an old friend who used to stay at my place in Brooklyn a lot. And my neighborhood is almost entirely African-American and was at the time. I I think I was literally the only white person on the block as far as I could tell. But anyway, I had this old friend who would come, uh, come to my place and hang out. And then around, you know, 10 p.m. or so, he would say, hey, so it's getting a little late. Can I stay here tonight? And of course, the answer is always yes. But then I would ask, why? Why do you why can you not walk the three minutes to the subway and go back to lower Manhattan where he lived? And he would say, well, I'm just not comfortable in this neighborhood. And I would say, what do you mean not comfortable? And he would say, I'm just, I'm not used to it. I'm, I'm just not comfortable with it. But it's interesting the way he, and I think most white people, can find words to avoid what's really going on. You know, at the center of the issue, he was uncomfortable in neighborhoods like this. What does that mean? Well, he never really examined it, and I didn't force him to examine it. But there was this understanding, you know, of, oh, you get it, right? You understand it, right? Why I would be uncomfortable here. You know, but of course, I'd lived there for at least 10 years. I was perfectly comfortable there. And I don't tell this story to drag an old friend. I tell this story because it demonstrates how talented white people are at avoiding the word, avoiding the discussion, never face what they mean when they say things like, I'm uncomfortable in neighborhoods like this. And now this is always the first difficulty, right? It's it's always getting white people to admit That racism is a real problem, and it's not just people in white hoods and cross-burnings. And a lot of white people will say things like, oh, if we stop talking about it, it would go away. Well, we tried that already. Go back to pre-Civil Rights Movement. Let's say everything prior to 1955 or thereabouts. We didn't talk about racism before then. And I'm pretty sure racism was a much, much bigger problem. That's why there was a civil rights movement. So the idea it will go away if we stop talking about it, or that the media is causing it by talking about it, or that Obama was causing it by talking about it, is so stupid. There are probably some people who, after hearing all of these stories that we just played, will tell themselves, oh, well, Most of that was just words. Most of that was just being called names. It was just language, words, words, never hurt anyone. That language doesn't mean much to white people because it has no power. And white people also don't know what it's like to be constantly singled out and reminded, hey, you're different. Even if it's out of curiosity, it still sends the message, you're not one of us. We, as white people, don't have a steady history of being called a racial slur followed by actual physical violence, which is not to say it never happens. But this is a reality that people of color in this country live with every day. Yeah, it's probably going to be just words, but they all have those stories. And have those experiences in the back of their head that say, sometimes words are a precursor to something else. And as a white man in this country, I don't have that problem. You call, me a, uh, you call me a honky or something, I can laugh it off. Because there's no history of that word ending up with me being killed. Yeah, so I can dismiss it. Because it doesn't mean anything to me. But it's different for people of color. And if you're sitting there thinking, oh, but you know, I read in the news one time about a black guy called a white guy honky and then killed him. Well, yeah, that's horrible. And the media does cover those rare incidents. So stop pretending the media is afraid to cover them. But if your first instinct was to hide behind that rare outlier type of event, rather than face the overwhelmingly disproportionate number of stories to the contrary, then you are part of the problem. Grow up. Stop being a child. I don't like preaching. I would like to be much better, you know, eliminate all of my unconscious biases, but it means a lot of soul-searching. It means doing a lot of things our biologically lazy brains don't want to deal with. And as white people, you don't have to. You can pretend none of this affects you and ignore it. And in fact, it will probably not affect you. That's the privilege part. So if you're white and you're listening to this, check in with your non-white friends. They'll probably be too tired and exhausted to talk to you about it. They may not give you a story but they'll probably appreciate the fact that you asked and signaled that you're willing to listen is the easiest, most human thing you can do. Just listen and believe. Thank you for listening, and have a great week. The Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Anson Mount and Brandon Edgens. Theme music written by Jonathan Myberg. Other music performed by Brandon Edgens. And thanks again to everyone who entrusted us
7: with their stories.